0: Hello there, this podcast is all about sex, so stop listening now if that's not what you're after. There's also some swearing. This podcast was made with the support of New Zealand On Air. Hello again, welcome back to another bonus episode of The Good Sex Project. I'm Melody Thomas and this is our mostly unedited conversation with the one and only sex educator, researcher and author, Emily Nagoski. Emily is the author of the iconic and excellently titled book, Come As You Are The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. Come As You Are is an amazing book. If you haven't read it, read it. It's also available in podcast form, and it's an exploration of why and how women's sexuality works. Emily's superpower is distilling complex and complicated research and brain science into easily digestible and understandable bits that the rest of us can understand and put into practice in our everyday lives. We've already heard from Emily throughout the series, but there was some great information we couldn't pack into those episodes. So for the real sex and love nerds like me who can't get enough of this stuff, here's my conversation with Emily Nagoski. Enjoy!
1: I did not know the truth about the hymen until I was already teaching at the college level. And my students asked some really specific questions about the hymen. And I was like, you know, I don't know in that much detail what's true about the hymen. So I looked it up. I looked at the actual peer-reviewed research. And I, already with a PhD, was like, I have been teaching lies all this time. So it turns out the hymen is an entirely functionless. Well, there are some people who think it has some function or other, but basically it's this totally functionless fold of skin over the mouth of the vagina on people on a number of people who were born with vaginas. It can be all kinds of different shapes. Some people have imperforate hymens, which means it's entirely solid. Some people have microperforate hymens, which means it has a lot of small holes. Some people have septate hymens, which means that it's got two holes and so it appears as like a strand of skin across the mouth of the vagina. And the reason it varies so much is that there has not been selection pressure on it. It does not have an evolutionary function that has been selected collected for. It is not, as my husband jokingly calls it, a freshness seal. It is not a marker of whether or not anything has ever been put into that vagina. There are people who have given birth whose hymens are intact. Like any human skin, if it tears, it heals. Yes, it changes with hormones and with age, but the hymen is is not this like mystical thing that magically breaks and is gone forever. And it can't differentiate between a tampon and a penis. It doesn't know whether you have lost your virginity, whatever that even is. Um, and it certainly can't tell whether or not you agreed to have something inside your body. So why does this functionless fold of tissue have so much cultural weight attached to it? And it's because in the Western world, the English-speaking history is that uh, women's bodies were the property of their fathers and then of the men who purchased them or who agreed to take on responsibility for them. And the hymen... Was decided to be an indicator of whether or not this person had ever had intercourse previously, which, uh, if it's still there, it's a marker of purity, which helps sort of like guarantee the purity of the product they were purchasing. They would know that any, they would have evidence or reason to believe that any children this woman bore would be their genetic progeny and they wouldn't be investing their parental resources into a human who was not their child. All this is inferred from a fold of skin over the mouth of the vagina. And it
0: doesn't, there's no relationship. None. Yeah, right. It made me think of, is it T.I., who's the kind of rapper who a couple of years ago was discussing how he goes to gynecological appointments with his daughter to check on the state of her hymen? Yeah. Yep.
1: Fathers own their daughter's bodies. Cool. Historically. It's a classic.
0: It's a classic. (laughs) There are so many stories like this, right? There's so many stories we tell yeah.
1: that have no base. It's in our difficult biology. to think of uh an anatomy part that is uh part of the ensemble of genital parts that uh when we see them on a human infant, we go, it's a girl. There's basically no part of that that is not just like layered with mythology. The entire like so the word pudendum is a medical word that gets applied to women's genitals in particular, and it's from the Latin word pudere, meaning to make ashamed. Why are we naming women the the it's a girl type genitals with to make ashamed? Well, according to medieval anatomists, it's because, you see, these genitals are tucked away between the legs, hidden like they're shy and ashamed, as opposed to the it's a boy type of genitals, which are like standing out proudly in the front, I guess. It's this metaphorization that we impose on top of what's actually
0: there. It's so funny. I mean... I I'm just imagining the first person to see that it's a girl genitals and be like, "Oh, look at it! She's embarrassed."
1: And it's like you're literally looking at it. It's not happening. Right it's right
0: there, it's literally, right there. Um, this is a big question, but what do you think is the single most important piece of information that you know the one thing that if you you could get across to people to help them on the road to better, healthier, happier sex lives that they should know?
1: I want to say that it's. Literally everything you were taught early in your life, like in the first twenty years about sex, uh, was fundamentally both wrong and wrong-headed, and we need to start from scratch. But like I feel like that's not very helpful. So, in your process of starting from scratch, start from here. Center pleasure. Sexuality is not about what you do or who you do it with or where or in how often which positions you do it in or even how many orgasms you have it's whether or not you like the experiences your body is having if you like it you are doing it right and if you don't then it's time to look for if see if there are things that you do like And I know this is not as straightforward as it sounds because I have had plenty of people, particularly people who were raised as girls, who tell me that they can't even recognize pleasure because so much of the feminine cultural messaging is about like your partner's pleasure is so much more important than yours. Yours really doesn't count. Make sure you're always pleasing your partner and meeting their expectations. And so when you're in an experience with a partner, all your attention is focused on whether or not they're having a good time. Are their expectations being met? Or is your body doing the things that it should be doing? And how do you look? And and are you putting on a good show for them? So much so that you have no attention left for even noticing what the experience feels like. So there are a lot of people who get to adulthood who don't even know what sexual pleasure feels Mm. like. And that's step one. What does it feel like inside your body when you experience pleasure? Mm. How do you feel about the pleasure that your body is capable of? Because not all of us grow up believing that it's okay. For us to experience and especially dwell in pleasure
0: it's so interesting because i you're absolutely right i feel like um so much of the messaging we receive and especially those of us raised and socialized as women is figure out what you want and then ask for it
1: it's really important that you ask for what you want how am i supposed to know how about i just name something i saw in porn that seemed like uh, something that they'd be cool with me saying exactly
0: Okay, so I'm guessing that the answer is to rewind, and we want to be figuring this out on our own, probably a little bit before we jump into a partnered situation where we have been socialized to let someone else's needs override our own.
1: That'd be great. And it's never too late. Never too late to begin investigating pleasure in your own body. You can be married for 30 years, never had an orgasm, and still explore your body sensations with curiosity on your own is a good idea. Uh, If you have the kind of connection with your partner that can sustain them stimulating you while you really like forget about them and their needs and are just tuned into you, that can work too. The oldest person I have met in person to tell me that they finally had an orgasm, she had her first orgasm in her 70s. It's literally never too late.
0: So can you... um, with your incredible brain that is so good at taking science and making it snackable or digestible for the rest of us plebs, can you please tell us about the dual control model of sexual response and how that I guess. <laughs> feeds into our sex lives? It's so important. I think pe- if people understood this, I think it would it could be huge. So you know that you know that that's
1: what the whole book is about. I let's, feel like let's do it. <laughs> When people first learn it, they're like, oh, there's a break. But then once you know it, it's like you always mm, knew it. Exactly. So it's actually really simple. It's called the dual control model, which means there are two basic parts. And really, the big idea here is just that what if sex works in your brain the same way as pretty much everything else in your brain, which is a partnership of an, of an excitatory impulse and an inhibitory impulse. So the excitatory impulse, the sexual excitation system or the accelerator, uh, notices all the sex related information in the environment. So this is everything you perceive with your extra senses, everything you see, hear, smell, touch, taste. It's also everything you think, believe or imagine and everything of your internal body sensations that your brain codes as sexually relevant. And your brain sends, the accelerator system sends that turn on signal that many of us are familiar with. And it's working at a low level all the time. Right now, here we are just talking about sex-related stuff. We were just talking about clitorises and things that's a little bit sex-related. So there's just there's just a little bit of turn on signal. Fortunately, at the same time, your brakes are noticing all the good reasons not to be turned on right now. So it's everything that you see, hear, smell, touch, taste. It's everything you think, believe, or imagine. And it's all the sensations inside your body that your brain codes as a potential threat. And it sends a turn-off signal. So the arousal process is a dual process of turning on the ons and turning off the offs. And when people are struggling with any aspect of arousal, desire, orgasm, pleasure, Sometimes it's because there's not enough stimulation to the accelerator. It's more often the case, though, that there is too much stimulation to the brakes. Because the brakes don't just respond to sex-related stimuli that are a potential threat. It responds to everything in your whole life that could be a potential threat. So that's your stress levels. Anybody stressed today? It's your body image. It's your trauma history. It's how your relationship is doing today, how your relationship has been doing for the past little while. It's how you feel about, you know, the state of the world. Yeah. All the good reasons not to be turned on right now. When people were at the beginning of the pandemic, people were like, there's going to be a baby boom because everybody's at home with nothing else to do. And I was like, y'all do not understand about the dual control model and the break. Yeah. Yep. 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 So...
0: Within each individual, there's an accelerator and a brake. And I'm guessing that each individual has different levels of sensitivity when it comes to either overactive, I'm saying overactive, but in quotations, accelerator, underactive. Very sensitive. Yeah, sensitive versus non sensitive of each.
1: Right. It's literally a bell curve distribution. Most of us are in the middle, but a few people have like either really sensitive accelerators. And you can imagine like if you're driving a car with a really sensitive accelerator, you know, on Ted Lasso, there's the football player who drives a Ferrari and he's like, no, it's too much car for me. That's a car with a really sensitive accelerator and he does not have control over it. And that's what it's like. It can seem really appealing to have a sensitive sexual accelerator, but these are the folks who are more at risk for sexual compulsivity and sexual risk taking because their accelerator is really sensitive and maybe their Mm -hmm. brakes are not responsive enough to counterbalance that. And also some people have really not sensitive accelerators and those are the folks who are most likely to identify as asexual. So this was a really big, important piece of information for me when I first looked at the research on asexual folks. It is not that they have really sensitive brakes and they're just like turned off and inhibited. It is that they have low sensitivity accelerators. So it just takes a lot of sex-related information to get their accelerator activated in a way that they can even notice. That's interesting. So does that mean that asexuality is malleable? Oh, that's a really complicated question. So just to start at the beginning, asexuality is sexual orientation. And this is the thing people get wrong. They think it's a lack of sexual desire. That's not what it is. There are ace folks who have sexual desire. They are arousable. They may masturbate. They are interested and curious about sex. They're just not attracted to anyone in the way a gay person is attracted to people of the same sex and straight people are attracted to people of a different sex and bi plus folks are interested in people regardless of their gender. So it's an, it's a sexual orientation in that way. So it's not even about not having sexual desire. It's about a sex really like there's... No people that particularly draw their attention. It's There are lots of micro labels. So there's an ASEX educator named Aubrey Lancaster who says that the purpose of a label is to communicate boundaries and needs. So when we ask if it's malleable, people's boundaries and needs shift as their lives shift. So I think anybody claiming an identity is doing it to communicate their boundaries and their needs, something that's just really true for them. And that can change. And the better we are at accepting that, like, people change over time. Sexuality is fluid. All of it. The closer we come to world peace. So the same thing goes with really sensitive breaks. Folks who have really sensitive breaks, it's only a handful of people, it's like, a, you know, 5% of the population, um, they're the ones who are most likely to experience difficulty with desire, arousal, and orgasm. I would have thought that there would have been higher the sensitive
0: breaks. Because so many, but that's, but it's not, what you're about to tell me is that it's maybe not necessarily sensitive breaks that are getting in the way for a lot of the other people. It's It's that there's a
1: bunch of stuff hitting the brakes. Yeah, 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 yeah. the
0: weight of the stuff hitting the brakes. Okay, well, that's a great uh, segue into context. Let's talk about context, shall we? Let's. When you first mention context or say, you know, if you're not feeling in the mood, change the context. People imagine candles in a hotel room, but that's not what you mean. Can you please explain to us what
1: you mean? Yeah. It's not that those aren't ever part of context, Mm. but really what context means is a combination of your external circumstances and your internal state. So I was recently watching a YouTube video about uh, some new parents who were talking about the impact of having a young child on their sexual connection. And one of the things that was true was that it's a heterosexual couple, and the mom was like, I cannot even start being interested in sex if the baby is in the room. And the dad was like, I do not have that issue. So different people respond to different external circumstances differently. It's the same way for me and my husband and the dogs. And the dogs. Is it okay to have the dogs in the room? <laughs> Are you the yes or the no. vary. I'm fine with it. <laughs> I feel like maybe a
0: dog would be fine, but a cat, I think uh, they know too much. I don't think I'm letting a cat in the room.
1: <laughs> the problem is when they like get on the bed and start wanting to like play the game. Yeah. That's yeah, not no, no, awesome. No, they're,
0: not, they're not playing but, this game.
1: But then again, people all vary. Um, I met a couple. This woman stopped me out to tell me this story. She and her husband and her three kids would go to... A little vacation town on the Mediterranean for their vacation every year. They rented the same very old house on the Mediterranean. Um, And like every year, this couple had great vacation sex. And vacation sex is a thing for a lot of people because you have hugely changed the context. You have gotten away from all the stuff that is stressing you out. You have totally shifted into a different state of mind. Um, But one year, this same house was not available. So they rented a different house. And the sex was kind of just okay. And they got home and were like, what? What happened? What I love is that they didn't say what went wrong. They didn't say what's wrong with me or what's wrong with you or is there something meaningful, different about our relationship? They just looked at these circumstances and were like, what? What changed? And what they realized is that the first house is so old. A thing that happens in the Mediterranean in old houses, the beds are built into the wall. They're stone which means there's no creaking and no banging and no worry about waking up the kids and being interrupted. And the elimination of that one worry was enough to make a total transformation to the quality of the sex. So when they decided to build their own home, they built their bed into the wall.
0: (laughs) I love that story.
1: That's not the kind of sex advice anyone would ever think to give. (laughs) But when you know that it is perfectly normal for context to influence your perception of a sensation, like tickling is the classic example, right? Um, so So if you're feeling fun, flirty, playful, already turned on with somebody you feel great about and they tickle you, it's not everybody's favorite. It is some people's favorite, but it can feel good and lead to other things. But if that exact same certain special someone tickles you when you are pissed off at them, does that does that feel fun, flirty, and like it could? No, you want to hit somebody in the face. <laughs> and the thing is, it's the same sensation, right? With the same person. But because your internal state is different, the way your brain interprets that sensation is opposite. Mm. And that is normal. The way people often experience this in real life is, you know, at the beginning of a relationship, the hot and heavy fallen in love stage. You're like making dinner for you, both of you, and uh, your partner comes in and starts kissing you somewhere special and puts their arms around you and your knees melt and you let dinner burn. But 10 years and maybe some kids later, your partner comes in and starts kissing the special place and puts their arms around you and you are like, could you please go set the table? And the reason is that the con- like you are not broken there's nothing wrong in your relationship the context changed because now you have other pressures you have a different relationship because the relationship changes over time the context changed that doesn't mean it's worse it just means it's different so how do we copy paste that context you don't <laughs> stop wanting to please i beg you i know it's fun Because it's easy and it's intense when you're falling in love. And so it feels like that's the way desire is supposed to work. But in couples who sustain a long-term connection, like a a sexual connection that lasts decades, spontaneous desire is not a predictive factor in whether or not a couple sustains a sexual connection over the long term. You know what is a predictive factor? Pleasure. Do you like the sex you are having? And I know we live in a world where we prioritize desire. We want to increase spontaneous desire for sex. We want to be hot and horny and intense like the fallen in love part. But over the long term, what an extraordinary sex life looks like is, you know, maybe it's scheduled and you put deliberate effort into like tidying up the house and really finishing the dishes and finishing the laundry. I heard a story from one woman. Who was like, it was their schedule. the kids were out of the house. She finished the last of the things she was supposed to be doing that day. It was time, she tromped up the stairs, she took off her clothes, she got in bed and was waiting for her wife. And she was waiting for her wife. And she was like, Can we can we just do this, please? So her wife comes in. The wife is naked and carrying the last basket load of laundry, clean laundry. And like it's a strip tease. She puts the love. La- oh, is this your T-shirt? I'm going to hang it up in the closet just like you like it, even though it makes no sense to hang up a T-shirt. I know that's how you like it. And like bends over in a sexy way, wiggles her butt in the air. Like that is what great sex in a long term relationship looks like. It is not can't wait to be here. It's ugh, it's time to do this. Oh, hello. and laughing riotous giggling because it is silly and absurd to roll around with our skin pressed against another person and putting our mouths on each other's genitals. And it's very bananas that we do this. So, but why, why would we, why would we spend, why would we stop doing all the other important things we could be doing? Maybe we've got kids to raise. Maybe we've got school to go to or a job or parents to take care of or other friends we want to be around, or God forbid, we just want to watch TV and nap. Why would we not do any of those things and just do this thing where we rub our skin against this other person's skin? In the couples who sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term, it's because they decide it matters for their relationship. It's beneficial to them as individuals. It's beneficial to them as a couple that they cordon off space and time just to do this very silly, sometimes really fun sometimes really important, often just playful and delightful thing that humans do. Can you tell them in the middle of writing a book about this? <laughs> I'm so glad we got you at
0: this perfect, perfect time. Yes. <laughs> Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm Tigers, Broncos, and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and, of course, everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut Ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcast. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've got to take them on a journey. <laughs> oh, the journey.
1: Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to the Long Read from Stuff, wherever you get your podcasts. It's all very well to say to have more sex, reduce your stress levels, but it's kind of like saying exercise is good for you, or like sleep's important. We already know it, but we either don't fully understand what it means, or we haven't managed to access the motivation to, you know, make the thing happen, or maybe both. So... Can you talk to me a little bit about the ways, the kind of neurochemical and biological ways that stress can impact our desire, arousal, sexual functioning?
1: Yeah. So if we think about the biochemistry of the stress response in our bodies, we've all heard of fight or flight, right? That's the stress response that happens. And it's there to help us when we are under threat. And it evolved in the environment of evolutionary adaptedness to help us cope with threats like, you know, saber-toothed tigers or whatever coming after us. Our threats were big and could run 30 miles an hour and had teeth. Right? And so if you're being chased by a lion or a hippo or whatever, uh, the first thing that happens is your body floods with all of the stress hormones and things that we hear about all the time. And every system in your body shifts in response. So we know your cardiovascular system shifts. We know your heart rate increases and your blood pressure increases. Blood actually moves away from the surface of your skin. So if you get cut, you don't bleed as much. Your digestive system slows down. It's deprioritized. Your reproductive system slows down. It's deprioritized every physiological system changes that includes your attention it narrows down to just this one problem so it is difficult to shift your attention away from this one thing and like think creatively or out of the box or about anything other than the threat that has activated this biochemistry now if you're running away from a threat and you have all this physiology happening there's really only two possible outcomes either you are eaten by the lion in which case none of the rest of this matters. Or you survive, you run away, you save your own life and you live and you watch the lion give up and trot away, finding some other human to feed to her young. And how do you feel? You've run away from the lion as fast as you possibly can. You got up the tree, you see it wander away and you're so relieved and you're glad to be alive, and you love your friends and family, and you can't wait to go tell them the story of how you survived. That's the relaxation response, and it's the end of a complete stress response cycle. We are now, alas, almost never chased by (laughs) predators that can run 30 miles an hour and have uh, sharp pointy teeth. Instead, our stressors, the things that activate the stress response, our traffic, our partners, family, school, work, money, or boss. These are threats that are not going to kill you, but your body responds to them in a really similar way to the way they behave when you're being chased by a monster. So like, how do you deal with a boss who's explaining to you why you need to do things totally differently and and actually if you would do it more the way i did la la, la, like your body is activated in a stress response it might be a fight response instead of flights you want to like fling yourself across the desk and like strangle them or punch them in the face or otherwise injure them right but instead you behave yourself like a good girl and you smile and nod and say "Mm, that's really interesting thank you for that feedback and, and you walk out with a smile on your face, seething. And then what? How do you complete the stress response cycle when the strategy that effectively deals with your stressor has nothing to do with anything your body recognizes as finding its way to safety? When you walk out of that meeting, seething. A brilliant thing our bodies will do is it will hold on to that spinning stress response cycle for a real long time. If later that day you go for like a big power walk and like stride it out and rant in your head and release all that feeling, you are moving your body in a way that communicates to your body that you have escaped the stressor. The process of dealing with the stress itself is separate from the process of dealing with the thing that activated the stress in the first place. Physical activity is probably the most efficient for most people. It's not available to everyone for any number of reasons. Creative self-expression, laughter, a good old cry. I'm a big fan of the good old cry. If you just deal with your problems and don't deal with the stress itself, if stress is something that hits your brakes, which it is for a lot of us, then... The stress is going to continue to hit your brakes even after you have solved all the problems. The really good news about all this means is that you that if you can solve your problems without completing your stress response cycle, you can also complete the stress response cycle even if you haven't dealt with the stressor, which is really important because a lot of our stressors do not go away ever. But if we deal, if we complete the stress response cycle so that our bodies can return to uh, the relaxation response, all of our body systems recalibrate to normal. They actually get stronger and healthier as a result of getting all the way to the com- relaxation response. Then it's not going to hit your break, even though the problems still exist. Thank you for condensing your entire um, other book into
0: five <laughs>
1: for me. Yeah. It's actually just the first chapter. Yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) There's more to that. There's more to that. Red burnout. Um, It made me think about how, you know, there's a bit of research around saying that Gen Z are having less sex than Gen X and, you know, basically less sex going on down the generations. And do you have ideas about why that is? Is it just like hard to be horny when it feels like the end of the world? Is it... um, people
1: choosing to have less bad I actually have a fairly bleak but also like very optimistic interpretation okay uh which is so I've seen the data on frequency of sex spanning more than a century and there's there is a a slow but definite decline in frequency of sex over the last hundred plus years and while I think there's probably a lot to be said about how like Stress levels are increasing. There's a difference between the state of our bodies and the state of our world. And that's disorienting. And our bodies don't know what to do with it. But I think a bunch of it has to do with the fact that women can say no. And their partner has to listen. That a lot of the sex that was happening before maybe wasn't super consensual. Because there was no such thing. Especially when you were married. Legally, there's no such thing as giving or denying consent. Your body is the property of the man who married you. And that has changed. Yay. I see what you mean by bleak, but
0: also optimistic. I've also thought about it in terms of, you know, just generally, we're not, hopefully not lying back and thinking of England as much.
1: You know what? The Victorians uh, get a bad rap. It was the Edwardians who rewrote Victor. Everybody likes to think of the previous generation as being idiots. Uh, Like, they're doing it wrong. And I use ableist language there sort of in a deliberately provocative way. But, like, we like to judge people in the past. And um, there's a historian, Fern Riddell, with several great books on the history of sexuality. One of the cases she makes is that the Victorians, when you look at the actual research on Victorian sexuality, the contemporaneous research, they were having a bunch of sex. They completely understood what female orgasm was. And they valued it. I mean, depending on the subculture, but, like, it actually was important to them. And the Edwardians came along and rewrote that history because uh, they wanted to believe that they were doing sex better.
0: Yeah, we really backtracked for a little period there.
1: Really working our way, clawing our way back. Uh, I mean, we were. Things might be different in New Zealand, but in uh, in the United States at the moment, it feels like it's a major, major backsliding happening right now. It's... It's bad here.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, I think um, I think things are less bleak than that in New Zealand, but it does. Uh, there is a general feeling for sure. Yeah, everybody I know wants to move to New Zealand. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Every time we're on the world stage, I'm like, stop talking about us. I just want people to not know that we exist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can come, and your fr- cool friends can come, but like, otherwise, let's just keep it on the down low. <laughs> <laughs> um okay this feels like you know one of those things where someone tells you and you're like oh I kind of do that already being raised in a sex negative culture impacts your sexual
1: functioning and sexual well-being yeah. strange weird that who, who oh, would have, have thunk thought it? that being taught that sex is dirty dangerous and disgusting would hit your brakes so can you quickly break down the different messages
0: you do it so well in your book the moral message medical message media message the things that we are told yeah. and how that then impacts us
1: Yeah, so the moral message is this sort of historical line of reasoning that says that there are certain ways that good people behave, and of course the rules are different for the it's-a-girl type people and the it's-a-boy type people, uh, and you must behave according to that, or else you are a bad person who does not deserve to be part of human society, and you'll be kicked out of the culture. So that's that's the moral message. And like when you hear it out loud, you're like, oh, obviously. But then again, I live in a country that was founded by the Puritans who left Britain because the British were too morally lax about Ooh. sex. Cool, cool. Cool. Yeah. And those those moral messages are the things underlying all the arguments about basic bodily autonomy uh, and certainly about uh LGBTQIA2 plus folks. Those are all grounded in the morality of sexuality and conforming to the misogynist patriarchal gender binary. Mm. Insert short commentary that I won't actually go into about uh, all of the traditional cultures that were non-binary and uh, imperial Christian forces came in and eradicated their non-binary identities. And now the Pope is calling it gender ideology is he called it colonization. He called gender gender ideology. Colonization. Oh, wow. That is the opposite of how wow, it works. Wow, wow, wow. That's the opposite of history. Wow. Oh, I have feelings That's about amazing. that. Yeah. So then there's the medical message where like medical science has a specific point of view about like what counts as a normal sexual functioning. Um, you'll be shocked to learn that the medical message is mostly grounded in patriarchal views where men are the default and the ways that women vary from men are the ways that they are broken and need to fix themselves. That has been changing very slowly uh, since about the late 70s, early 80s, when, shocker, more women became physicians and sex researchers. So as the research gets better, the standard narratives of women as broken men is crumbling under the weight of the evidence.
0: Can you give us one very quick specific example of, of that, you know, of, of the ways that women's
1: orgasm during intercourse, penis and vagina orgasms, Freud, that, vaginal orgasms from penile-vaginal intercourse are the mature ones, and clitoral orgasms are the immature ones. It's amazing. (laughs) Which is a really good story if you have a penis and enjoy putting it into vaginas. Like, it is a very helpful narrative to have um, when that's the kind of sex you want to be having with somebody with a vagina. You blame them for being immature if they need clitoral stimulation to have an orgasm. Cool. Cool. So over multiple studies across a hundred years now, it's become really clear that only about a quarter, maybe a third of cisgender women are reliably orgasmic from penis and vagina stimulation in the research they call it unassisted intercourse, which I find very funny. Uh, The remaining two thirds to three quarters of cisgender women are sometimes orgasmic from vaginal stimulation, rarely orgasmic that way, or never Orgasmic that way. Now we know that it is just normal for there to be a wide variation in how people experience orgasms. And we also know that orgasm is not really a physiological, like peripheral nervous system function. It doesn't so much happen in your genitals, it happens in the brain areas that represent your genitals and indeed in the entire brain. The reason they can do fMRI and PET scan studies of orgasm is because orgasm is happening in the brain. You can have an orgasm without stimulation of the genitals. People with spinal cord injuries who have no sensation in their genitals can have orgasms. No one can have an orgasm with genitals, but not a brain. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Because the third kind
0: of message that you discuss in your book is media, the media message. And discussion of orgasm is a perfect lead-in because what we see in the movies is all – I don't think I've ever seen anyone – I mean, obviously I'm not expecting a close-up of cl- clitoral stimulation, but I'm I'm not getting any suggestion that's that's happening during penetrative sex in any film that I've seen. It's, it's always a penetrative orgasm. Oh, yeah. It's like we are vaginally orgasmic and that is
1: normal, and if not,
0: you're broken.
1: Yeah, it's the whole narrative of like desire happens spontaneously, easily – reliably. uh, You don't need any foreplay. You can just go right from making out to having hot sex against the wall penetration. I literally had a student talk to me because she was worried that her clitoris was broken because there were times when her partner stimulated her when it felt irritating rather than pleasurable. And it turns out They had not done anything before they touched the clitoris. They truly had been convinced by uh, mainstream and porn representations of sexuality that touching the clit in any context was instantly and automatically reliably going to feel good all the time no matter what. Like, there is no kind of stimulation a human being can experience that instantly, automatically, reliably feels good every time. Like, I can't touch my nose and have it feel good every time because the context changes how I perceive that sensation. Yeah. Yeah, you need to preheat the oven. And by oven, I mean brain. (laughs) So we
0: live in this sex negative culture that as much as we may try is giving us all these messages about how our bodies and our sexuality are wrong and, and adequate and um, this is obviously impacting our sexual well-being. So how do we begin to create, you know, I think you call it a bubble of sex positivity or to, you know, maximize pleasure and enjoyment and okayness, peace with our bodies in a world that is telling us that we are gross and wrong, and strange and weird.
1: Yeah, uh, it's it's a combination of actively pursuing our own authentic sexual selves, exploring what's truly right for us without reference to other people's opinions, combined with grieving for. All that time we spent believing those lies, all the time we spent following someone else's rules, we were promised that if we just followed the rules, we would get pleasure, we would get satisfaction, we would get our reward. And it turns out none of, none of it was true. If we followed the rules really well, we'd just end up trapped in somebody else's idea of who we're supposed to be. So it is an act of rebellion to explore your own personal experience of pleasure. And it necessarily brings with it this mourning for the sexuality that we might have had, but can never go back and have for ourselves. And you got to do both of those things side by side. Because if you are holding on to the grief and the anger, because it's not just that you feel sad, you feel angry that you were lied to for so long and missed out on so much because people wanted you to believe these lies. You have to purge that stuff or else it'll like hang around inside you and uh, hit the brakes. Okay, I have a million more questions and I'm going to narrow it down to two.
0: I have seen on my Instagram feed um, from time to time, and I think in news headlines, uh, basically people either advertise advertisements for or headlines talking about the Viagra for women or the new thing that will increase um, desire and arousal for women. Can you just give us a little, for people who might see that in their feeds or see those headlines, what do we need to remember when we see that? If they worked,
1: the evidence is sketchy. If they worked, their point would be to increase desire. And where we started was that desire is not the thing, pleasure is the thing. There's this great analogy that I learned from a sex therapist in New Jersey named Christine Hyde. She tells her couples with differential desire, imagine you get invited to a party by your best friend. You say yes because it's a party and your best friend. Uh, and so the date is approaching and you start thinking, oh, I'm going to have to find childcare. It's going to be traffic on a Friday night. Am I really going to feel like putting on my party clothes at the end of a long week? But you know what? You said you would go. So you go, you put on your polarity clothes and you show up to the party. And what happens then? You have fun at the party a lot of the time. And if you are not having fun at the party, is there any amount of like just really, really wanting to go to a party that's going to make that party worth going to? Desire is not the thing. Don't worry about how much you like crave or can't wait to have sex. Have this is another thing from Peggy plots. She asked her clients, what kind of sex is worth wanting? If the sex available to you is not worth wanting, the problem, of course, of course you don't want it. It's not worth wanting. Pleasure is the thing. So rather than uh, taking a pill to make you want sex that may or may not be worth wanting, what if you explored creating a context that makes it easier for your brain to access pleasure? Beautiful. Chef's kiss. So a big
0: thing that we have grappled with in this series and talked about a bit is sex positivity, um, what it means and how we have interpreted it and the gap between those two things. So this is basically how I think about it. And you just interject or add things as you will. But it feels like, especially for people socialized as women and reaching for sexual empowerment, but without any deep understanding of any of the stuff, any of the context, any of how our histories impact us, we've ended up in the situation of like, all sex is good and any sex is better than no sex. And and this expectation that has pretty much always been the expectation for men that um, women and girls and people socialized as women and girls should be up for it always up for anything. And first of all, I'd say that probably that model hasn't actually worked traditionally that well for men. Uh, and it certainly doesn't seem to be serving a lot nope. of women. So I feel like our the sexual empowerment for women is kind of a copy and paste of what we've seen men doing that
1: hasn't really been working for them, isn't really working for us. Yeah, it's weirdly second wave, right? <laughs> second wave feminism is this idea that women can do anything that men can do, which means women not taking on the same, like, serfdom positions within capitalism and making money and being assholes and working hard and destroying themselves in the name of getting ahead because women can do anything men can do and men also destroy themselves in service of mammon yeah I sorry this is my anti-capitalist rant i agree (laughs) so it's weird that sex positivity hasn't shifted but That's not how I. So, when I use the term sex positivity, what I mean is everybody gets to choose how and when they are touched, and they get to choose how they feel about their own body. Period. It's basic bodily autonomy and the freedom to have opinions about your own body independent of other people's opinions about your body.
0: So can you tell me, and I, and I'm, I know the answer is going to be in part um, it's as many things as there are human women in the world or, or, but, sure. but can you describe for me a sex positive, sexually empowered woman in 2023?
1: Yeah, This is actually chapter six of my buck. It might be chapter five. I might be moving it around. Um, so I define normal sex in a sex positive mindset. Normal sex is where, uh, People are engaging erotically with each other and everyone involved is glad to be there and free to leave with no unwanted consequences, including no unwanted emotional consequences. And there's no unwanted pain. If there's wanted pain, if you've got clothespins or needles or whatever and you love that, do you, friend. But uh, everyone's glad to be there, free to leave with no emotional emotional consequences or physical consequences and no unwanted pain. Perfect sex. Is when you have that plus everyone is turning toward whatever's happening in this moment with playful, confident joy. So if, for example, a person with a penis would like to get an erection and an erection is not happening, you turn toward the absence of the erection and all the feelings anybody might have about that absence of erection with playful confidence and joy. You love what's happening right now in the moment, including loving the penis that isn't behaving the way somebody might wish it were. There's so much fun you can have with a soft penis, by the way. Or like suppose you've been stimulating yourself for a while and you want to have an orgasm and orgasm isn't happening. Perfect sex is when you turn toward all the pleasure you've been experiencing in your movement toward orgasm with playful confidence and joy. You love what's true regardless of whether or not orgasm happens. That's perfect sex.
0: Thank you, Emily Nagoski, for giving us access to your incredible brain there. If you haven't already, read the book, Come As You Are. You can also read Burnout, which Emily wrote with her sister Amelia, which is packed with great science and practical exercises for managing stress and avoiding burnout. Also, keep an eye out for the book she's writing right now, which she paused working on to talk with us.
1: Prepare for an unfiltered journey through the harsh
0: realities of infertility. My name's Nadine Higgins. I'm a broadcaster, a journalist, and I've been trying to make a baby with my husband. That's me, I'm Dan, and we reckon infertility is lonely enough without making it a dirty little secret. In The Human Race with Dan and Nadine Higgins, we share raw and unvarnished stories of couples who have faced the brutal truth of infertility. it's, It's really tough and really lonely. Yeah, and also, this is really weird, but baby showers? You don't need to open the presents in front of everyone. Confronting the harsh reality that not every story has a happy ending.
1: This very blunt abrasive doctor who I had you know had not seen before who delivered the news it's just like you'll probably never have a natural period again and you'll probably never have a baby. The
0: human race where we share the untold stories of couples in the race of their lives to create a life. I feel like I nearly missed out and I got to do it and so I feel really lucky so it's been incredibly positive. Listen today at stuff.co.nz slash the human race or wherever you get your podcasts. The Human Race is proudly brought to you by Elevit. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account what, no, on I, what, rising
1: child no, abuse numbers. You can
0: manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a about got journalism.
1: I'm into the National Party's no, no, attack line no, there. But but I think was... It would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction.
0: It, it, yeah, I'm not worried about it at all. That's, Nothing if in there. On. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts.